0: Method and Madness is a true crime podcast and contains descriptions of violence. Listener discretion is advised. All witnesses, persons of interest, and or suspects are considered innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. There may be times when we are powerless to prevent injustice, but there must never be a time when we fail to protest. This is Method and Madness, Episode 59. Murdered. Kristen O'Connell, Part 4. I'm your host, Don Gandhi. literature authors use themes central ideas throughout their written work the reader will come away with their take on what it all means what the book says to them through symbols maybe even language students sitting in class assigned their required readings may not always be able to distinguish what the author's intended theme is and each reader may have a different take on what it all means to them what it sparked in them stirred up, or how it made them feel. Kristen O'Connell's story, up until a certain point, could be one of family, or coming of age a la Francie in A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. The girl from Wisconsin and Minnesota, coming into her own, turning 20 and attending college, dreaming of sunshine and palm trees and discovering adulthood, a free spirit, top-down in her convertible the wind in her hair, and a John Denver song on repeat in her head. She begins to pursue love and connection. But in August, Kristen's story took an unexpected and tragic turn, and suffering and judgment became common themes in the journey toward justice. If we examine common themes throughout this case, what would be the takeaway? Will we really know the theme? what it all means before we even get to the ending. Will the ending of Kristen's story be one of hope, we wonder? While there is much suffering physically and emotionally throughout Kristen's story, is it possible that in reaching that last chapter, we can look back and see that good always prevails and evil is defeated? Will a mother finally get to that last chapter soon? Before we dive in, just a note that since the premiere of this series, several people have reached out with tips, suggestions, and even contributions to the timeline of August 14, 1985 and beyond. All of the information has been passed along to Trooper Pete McCadden, the lead investigator in Kristen's case. Keep it coming. If you saw something, say something. Previously, on Method and Madness... Fear washes over a small, rural town as a killer evades capture, and the days turn into months, months turn into years, and years turn into decades while a mother continues to fight, not only for justice, but for truth. Over the years, with every new tip and as new investigators with fresh eyes and perspective took on Kristen's case, Phyllis O'Connell has had renewed hope. But it seemed that every lead, every declaration that an arrest was near, turned into a dead end. Over the decades, as painful as it was for her to hear, Phyllis has gained a better understanding of the area that Kristen had visited. Red flags were raised when Phyllis informed investigators about an FBI agent that had befriended Kristen right before she visited New York State. What mother wouldn't wonder if it was somehow discovered that her daughter knew an FBI agent, and if Kristen was mistaken for a snitch. Even an offhand comment made by Kristen while in Ovid that she had a friend in the FBI may have been misinterpreted. This elusive FBI agent is still being looked into. We also wondered about 36-year-old Larry Kenyon, the bartender at the Golden Buck in Ovid, how Kristen realized he was the same bartender she saw down in Florida, the one who apparently had been involved in a hit and run while Kristen was on spring break. Was this a crazy coincidence or something more? We've listened to an anonymous caller who told police on August 23rd, 1985, that if they wanted to find out what they were looking for, they needed to check a green Chevy on Main Street in Waterloo. They also indicated that they knew who the killer was and that they told him not to do it. This call so far hasn't led anywhere. Eyewitnesses the night of Kristen's murder saw two young men, white males, walking behind her on Route 139. They were described as slender, with shoulder-length hair, wearing blue jeans, and one in a jean jacket. One of them was about six foot tall, the other was shorter. Two cars were also seen in the area where Kristen was walking that night. One in particular was described as a green or blue car pulled up next to her. On today's episode, another tip comes in years after Kristen's murder. What the crime scene may say about the killer and how a hidden file may reveal more than just an incompetent investigator. Plus, we'll explore the possibility that Kristen's murder was completely random. A high level view of Kristen's murder may look like she was killed by a random person or persons happening upon the young woman late at night on the side of the road. Maybe they're driving aimlessly down country roads looking for something. They spot an attractive young woman walking. She's alone. It's dark. Maybe they think they can get her into their car. State police, early on in the investigation, didn't think the killer was local. And senior investigator Robert Fainer, you'll remember, said, there's always a Ted Bundy out there. It probably felt like that in the 70s and 80s. First, let's define what do we mean by random killing? Are we talking about this specific kind of outsider driving through town with no connection to Ovid? A man specifically looking for someone to prey on who would have been targeting anyone they saw or came across? Ted Bundy seemed to select his victims by using specific criteria—physical appearance, age. He targeted young, college-aged women with long, dark hair. What's the likelihood that Kristen was murdered by a random stranger, one that was on the prowl looking for a victim? The FBI's data on murder by relationship show that victims murdered by strangers account for a low percentage of yearly homicides. National Crime Survey data published in 1985 said that robbery was the crime most likely to be committed by a stranger, and homicide was the least likely to be committed by a stranger. Cases where the killer is a stranger to the victim are very rare, and when they do happen, males are more likely to be the victim. Documented cases of stranger homicide where there was seemingly no gain are few and far between. There's usually something to gain financially or a sexual motivation behind stranger homicide. On March 3rd, 2021, Sarah Everard, a 33-year-old marketing executive, was walking home in the Clapham neighborhood of South London when a parliamentary and diplomatic protection officer, Wayne Cousins, Pulled up beside her, it was about nine thirty pm. Cousins spoke with Sarah for a few minutes before handcuffing her and getting her into his unmarked car. She was being apprehended for breaching coronavirus guidelines. A couple driving past the interaction that night said it looked like a legitimate arrest being carried out by an undercover officer. Cousins then drove Sarah to Dover, stopped the car and transferred the woman into another car, his personal vehicle, and then drove to a remote rural area where he raped Sarah and strangled her with his belt. Cousins was caught six days later, and the investigation revealed that he had abused his power as a police officer, rented a car to use as an undercover vehicle, and kidnapped Sarah under the ruse of an arrest for quarantine guidelines. Sarah Everard was unknown to her killer. She was selected at random, but the crime had been carefully planned out. This is just one example of a victim being selected at random, but a crime being premeditated. Was Kristen's murder premeditated? The likelihood that she was killed by a random stranger who happened upon her is rare, and Kristen's autopsy revealed she wasn't sexually assaulted. This wasn't a robbery gone wrong, as Kristen had no valuables on her. Criminal profiling has been around for more than 40 years and has evolved over time, definitions and terminology changing. Fancy words come and go, and the method today is often seen as controversial as it's questioned whether it actually helps solve crimes but really it comes down to analyzing the evidence, the crime scene, and any descriptions of the killer based on witness accounts. FBI profiler and inspiration for the hit Netflix series Mindhunter, John Douglas said, quote, Behavior reflects personality. The best indicator of future violence is past violence. The crime must be evaluated in its totality. There is no substitute for experience, and if you want to understand the criminal mind, you must go directly to the source and learn to decipher what he tells you, and above all, why plus how equals who. Criminal profiling was largely developed by, as Douglas said, going to the source, interviewing convicted murderers and gathering information about their upbringing, intellect, mental health, and past relationships, why they selected their victims. Douglas would take a journey into darkness and get inside the offender's head. By Douglas and a team of FBI agents interviewing 36 convicted murderers, a framework for profiling was established with a methodology for looking at a crime scene and coming up with a profile of the killer. A former FBI profiler recently analyzed the crime scene photos in Kristen's case. Here are those findings. The scene appeared to be staged. Kristen's body was neat, orderly even, in the way that she was found. She was positioned in a way that indicated she was carried to the cornfield from somewhere else. Her clothes appeared to be removed after she died, evident by the way her underwear was found underneath her body. This profiler felt that it was likely the killer had spent time in a strict institutional setting like the military, law enforcement, the prison system, or in a psychological institution. Now, the medical examiner reported that Kristen hadn't been sexually assaulted despite that she was found naked. If this murder wasn't sexually motivated, then what was the motive? Early on in the investigation, one man that was a person of interest was a 28-year-old from Roselle, New Jersey, Carrick DeCamp. DeCamp raped a woman in DeWitt Park in Ithaca, New York, 25 miles from Ovid, in the summer of 1985. The day after Kristen's body was found, to be exact. He was arrested shortly after, indicted on August 21st, and convicted on 29 counts of rape and sexual abuse. He had selected his victim by striking up a conversation with her near the park before dragging her to a hidden area and attacking her. DeCamp had allegedly raped at least three other women, crimes he wasn't prosecuted for and the New York State Attorney General sought civil confinement as they believed he had a, quote, mental abnormality that makes him too dangerous to reintegrate into the community. DeCamp was looked into, but ultimately, his M.O. didn't match that of Kristen's murderer. Another man that was looked at in 1992 was a serial killer in New York's Hudson Valley, Nathaniel White a black male who would have been 25 at the time of Kristen's murder. On March 25, 1991, White committed his first murder, a controversial moment for the police, as he'd recently been convicted of abducting a 16-year-old girl but hadn't started his sentence yet. He served a year for the abduction and then was back on the streets of Orange County, New York, in April 1992, before the police realized he'd committed murder. Now on parole, White committed five more murders in June and July of 92. Ultimately, he was caught thanks to the sleuthing of two women who were relatives of two of the victims. Current investigator, Pete McKeddon, is looking into a lead I sent him about convicted murderer and suspected serial killer, Larry DeWayne Hall, who is currently serving a life sentence in North Carolina. He confessed to over 30 murders, but has reportedly retracted his confession. In September of 1993, Hall kidnapped 15-year-old Jessica Roach, a sophomore at Georgetown Ridge Farm High School in Illinois. She was abducted while riding her bike near her rural home. Six weeks later, her body was found in a cornfield. She had been strangled. At least one other presumed victim of Hall's was found in a cornfield on September 6, 1986. Other presumed victims were discovered in wooded or remote areas. Hall's M.O. was to abduct teen girls or young women and either stab or strangle them to death, sometimes mutilating their bodies. Hall was also a Civil War buff and took parts in reenactments all around the Midwest, Most of his presumed victims were in Indiana, Illinois, Missouri, or Michigan, but I looked into and discovered that there was an event 45 miles from Ovid called Civil War Weekend with reenactments of a Civil War battle in Elmira, New York, a week after Kristen's body was found. A long shot, perhaps. It's fairly obvious that the person or persons who killed Kristen were disorganized offenders. A lot of evidence was left behind, even with the heavy rain that came through the area before Kristen was found. Disorganized killers typically won't try to conceal the victim's body. They'll leave the victim where they were killed. One sentence that keeps running through my head is how plus why. Why would someone kill a young woman with virtually nothing to gain? One theory If we were to zoom back in and look at Kristen's murder through the lens of a local, possibly an acquaintance being the murderer, is perhaps the intention wasn't to kill Kristen. Advocates for Kristen wonder if the intent was to scare her, either as a sick joke or because she was mistaken for a snitch. Was there an offhand comment made by Kristen about being in touch with an FBI agent? Did someone see Kristen walking by herself and decide to approach her or send their drunken friend to go mess with her? In this scenario, murder wasn't the intention, but was the result. The clothing being removed and Kristen's body being posed could be staging to misdirect the investigation. What the killer didn't factor in in 1985 was that technology would advance so much in the 90s that even a tiny hair could identify them. Let's take a break. Another recurring theme in Kristen's case is that of communication, the number of people coming forward to claim they know someone who was involved. In episode three, I introduced you to one of the pig roasters, Doug Zamet, who says his life has been a nightmare after his stepsister told police she saw him and his friends covered in blood the night of Kristen's murder, a claim that Doug adamantly denies. And like many witness accounts throughout Kristen's story, this next one began with a phone call. To protect all people involved, the following names have been changed. It was approximately 2.20 in the afternoon of August 14, 1985, when Frank, a resident of Phoenix, New York, was preparing to leave home for his job in Syracuse. Before walking out the door, he received a phone call from his younger sister, Angela. She seemed bothered by something. She asked Frank to meet her at a bar in Ovid, New York, at midnight. When Frank asked what was going on, His sister hesitated before saying she needed protection from what she wouldn't elaborate. They talked for a few more moments, Frank trying to understand what was going on and Angela not divulging what she needed protection from. She told her brother she'd call him at work around 11 that night. He wasn't sure he'd be able to make it out to Ovid, but out of concern, told Angela to call him anyway. They said goodbye, and Frank went to work, wondering why his sister was in trouble. He considered her request, but didn't think an hour-plus drive to Ovid after a long shift sounded appealing. He wasn't even sure where exactly the town was located. Around 11.15 p.m., Frank hadn't received that call from Angela and left the workplace. He drove home and went to bed. It wasn't until at least... Two weeks later that Frank heard about the murder of Kristen O'Connell, and the details were fuzzy. All he recalled was that the victim was found in a field and thought it was odd that the murder occurred close to where his sister and her partner Lynn were living. Frank admits that the following details are, quote, sketchy. Around Labor Day weekend 1985, he went to visit Angela at her new home, where she lived with Lynn. They'd recently moved from their home in Romulus, nine miles from Ovid, and were now 50 miles away in Red Creek, New York. They were sitting in the living room when the topic of Kristen O'Connell's murder came up in conversation, possibly because it had come on a news program, but it's unclear. Frank asked about the details of the crime and how far away it happened from Angela's Romulus home. She responded that it happened very far away. It was, quote, some girl from out of town and that nobody knew who she was. It was at this point that Angela's partner, Lynn, allegedly said, quote, the bitch got what she deserved. This harsh and bizarre statement immediately caused Angela to glare at Lynn, in 2010, while involved in a lawsuit with his sister, Frank submitted a written affidavit and outlined all of these details, including additional ones about Angela's alleged drug abuse, drug dealing, and descriptions of a farm where she'd grown a great deal of marijuana. Frank concluded his written statement by saying, quote, My main motivation for relating these incidents is to help solve the nature of Kristen O'Connell's brutal murder, as I do believe my sister Angela had something to do with her untimely death. The statement was signed by Frank and by a notary. This information has been provided to the New York State Police and has been looked into by private investigators. Allegedly, Angela told her mother and sister that she was present on the night that Kristen was murdered, but did not participate. One can only hope that with each tip that comes in, each accusation, that it's coming from a place of purely good intentions, of truth and honor. Another theme in Kristen's story truth versus fiction. In an August 1991 article in the Ithaca Journal, Phyllis and Mike O'Connell spoke with reporters to try and revive their daughter's case. Six years in, they'd hired private investigators and even psychics and were told that Kristen may have seen something she shouldn't have. The O'Connells expressed then, as Phyllis has relayed to me several times, that they felt frustration over the frequency with which Kristen's case had been passed on to new investigators.
1: 37 years later, her case is not solved. And it could have been. I mean, there's so much that we could cover in this podcast, and there's a lot (laughs) that's happened over the years, and just crazy stuff, you know, that, that you think, God, can this be for real? I mean, we've had psychics, two of them. People have been threatened to get off the O'Connell case. I mean, this just goes on and on. And there's so many loopholes in in the system that, that were just left out there, and nobody's really addressed them.
0: One item of note that wasn't properly addressed involved Dick Chapin, one of the investigators with the state police from the very beginning. One of my sources, a retired officer with the New York State Police, told me that when Kristen was reported missing, Chapin was on the northern end of Seneca County up in a helicopter. He was accompanied by local legislators, reportedly looking into the marijuana farms. Once Kristen's case became a homicide, Chapin was brought in to investigate. What he and other members of law enforcement have said is that it was a difficult investigation due to lack of suspects, lack of motive, and lack of leads. Chapin said that assigning a new person to the case from time to time ensures that it's looked at from all angles. But to the O'Connells, it meant a delay in progressing the case forward, as each new investigator had to spend so much time reading through and familiarizing themselves with the case file. A case file that somewhere in a New York State police building filled 14 filing cabinets and an additional filing cabinet in Dick Chapin's home. Chapin passed away in 2004 at the age of 65, and about four years later, one of Phyllis O'Connell's private investigators got the idea to go to Chapin's ex-wife's home and ask an unusual question. Did Chapin ever bring his work home with him? Chapin's ex-wife said she had kicked him out of the house and threw his possessions all over the lawn, but he never came back to collect the police reports he had in a filing cabinet. Sure enough, in one of those drawers, there was a Bureau of Criminal Investigation report from Kristen O'Connell's file. Typed out on several sheets of paper were leads and tips recorded in 1989 and 1990. In this report was a witness account from a woman named Joanne. Here is what she told police in 1989. A Florida resident, Joanne had been hospitalized at Lee Memorial Hospital in Fort Myers late February and early March of 1986. While staying there, she overheard a conversation in the visitor's lounge that another patient, a male being treated for a burn, was having with his friends. After the visitors had left, Joanne said to this other patient, I couldn't help overhear you tell your friends that you were in my hometown for vacation last year, Ovid, New York. The two chatted for about 45 minutes. The young man was familiar with the Golden Buck, but didn't mention where he'd stayed in Ovid. He had either contacts within, or had worked at, Sanibel's South Seas Plantation, the resort where Kristen had met James Vermeersch. The patient, who Joanne remembered as being named James or Jamie, was a white male in his 20s, about five ten, with a mustache, and wavy brown hair. He said he'd visited Ovid in August of 85, to which Joanne responded, so you were there when that girl was killed. James, or Jamie, got nervous, upset, and stopped talking, checked himself out of the hospital the next day. Joanne found it to be a troubling exchange and sent a letter to Deputy Steele of the Seneca County Sheriff's Department back in September of 1989. From there, her tip was referred over to investigator Dick Chapin, who took the information and typed it up into a BCI report. For some reason, he never handed it in. Was he hiding something? Possibly, but not necessarily. My source, that retired New York State trooper, told me, quote, Chapin was the essence of incompetence. Now, the private investigator that retrieved the hidden BCI report from Chapin's ex-wife did hand it over to the New York State Police, who confirmed there was no record of it in Kristen's case file. Also detailed in Chapin's report was the discovery of a man named James who had been hospitalized at Lee Memorial during the time that Joanne was there. In 1989, they tracked this James down, to a residence in Fort Myers, Florida. He would have been 24 years old at the time of Kristen's murder. From there, the police printed out his driver's license photo and presented it to Joanne, but she couldn't say for certain that it was the same guy. The BCI report noted that the lead for this James was still pending. My sources tell me that neither Joanne nor James were interviewed by state troopers after they received this hidden report. Joanne passed away in 2014. So what can we gather from this information? Another person from Florida with specific connections to South Sea's plantation visiting Ovid, New York in August of 85 and who clammed up at the mention of Kristen O'Connell. I want to read to you one passage from Chapin's BCI report where Joanne advised officers, quote, She has a nephew, Larry Kenyon, who works at the King Crown Bar at the South Seas Plantation and is in charge of the night bartenders, and that during her conversation with this subject, she mentioned Kenyon's name and that the guy said he knew Kenyon. Note, the night that Kristen was killed in Ovid, New York, Larry Kenyon was the bartender at the Golden Buck, County Road 139, Ovid, New York, and was alleged to have known Kristen from Florida, end quote. What are the odds that Larry Kenyon's aunt is at a hospital in Florida in 1986 and overhears a man talking about Ovid The connection that Joanne had to Larry Kenyon may be an actual coincidence in a filing cabinet full of them. But Ovid sources tell me that there were a lot of people from Florida at the Golden Buck the night Kristen was killed. When Joanne was interviewed by private investigators in 2010, they were provided with more information and leads to follow up on. They learned that Larry Kenyon frequently tended bar at the Golden Buck during the summer months, and that young adult males were shuttling back and forth to Captiva and moving cocaine to Ovid. A separate, very credible source also tells me that after Kristen had left Jim Vermeer's trailer to go for her walk, she first headed toward the area of the Golden Buck. Back in the 80s, Dick Chapin said, quote, We believe someone saw something that night. It was a warm night and people were out walking. We want to stir up the community. Now it's time we shake the trees and hopefully someone will come forward. Well, the trees have been shaken. People have come forward. It's highly likely, even probable, that the name of Kristen's murderer is somewhere in those 14 filing cabinets. Phyllis O'Connell wonders if law enforcement wants her daughter's case solved.
1: I'm sure that they would like nothing better than I disappeared off the face of the earth. <laughs> so I wouldn't be their thorn. We want to be able to make the system better, you know, not have to have this happen and if it does that we we are confident that the right people are out there that in law enforcement and everything that gets the case solved and these people that do these horrible things are put away or are, you know, that they're not on the street to do it again and that's why I've been fighting for this for all these years. Nobody's really You know, and and I think that if anything I can do, I can never bring her back. Never. We want to know what happened. Let's conclude this specific
0: chapter with a theme of friendship. Here is Kristen's friend, Shannon.
1: People have been through horrible things. I know everybody says such nice things about people when they die, and, oh, they were the best person, but this isn't a a lie, it's like, you literally took a spark, a flame out of this earth, and I don't get it, and I never will.
0: Coming up next, will Kristen's story ultimately be one of justice? Where the investigation stands today and what's going on with the testing of evidence, you'll hear from the founder of Cold Case Advocacy, Jolyn
1: Rice. And the fight that families have to have just to have evidence looked at and tested. And a lot of these cases, the issue is not enough money. There's only a number, one or two pieces of evidence that might be able to be tested in a case. So if that if the issue is lack of money and resources, I think that's a problem we can, we can probably solve. And we can, you know, close a lot of these cases. And I don't know anyone who works in law enforcement that wouldn't want that and wouldn't want the resources to be able to do that.
0: Here's today's call to action. Kristen's case can be solved. There's a petition online to get the DNA in Kristen's case tested. Please sign. If you have any information about Kristen's case and want to submit a tip, please do so by contacting Pete McCadden of the New York State Police. Check the show notes for more details. You can also share this episode and Kristen's story on social media. There's power in numbers, and someone knows something. To get more information about Kristen's case, visit my friends at Uncovered.com and make sure to join the Facebook group, Justice for Kristen O'Connell. A lot of people helped make this episode and miniseries possible. Thank you to Courtney Fenner, Jolyn Rice, Christopher Pavlik, Noel Hotchkiss, Preston Felton, the anonymous residents of Ovid, Barbara Baer, Shannon Harris, Phil Riedel, and of course, Phyllis O'Connell. Thank you for listening to this episode of Method and Madness. If you haven't already, please leave a rating or review, and don't forget to hit that subscribe button. To connect, I'm on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at Method of Madness Pod. To chat, suggest a case, or discuss the episode, reach out to me at MethodOfMadnessPod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is researched, written, and hosted by me. It is sound edited by Moen Spo. That's it for this week. Until next time, take care of yourself. For crisis support, text HELLO. Seven four one, seven four one.